Good evening. What a pleasure it is to gather here in God's house on the Lord's day to worship and praise the name of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who is worthy of honor and praise. We are blessed and we are privileged to be able to gather together as so many churches shut their doors tonight. Before I begin today, I just want to praise God for what He has done in my own life. For those of you who were here when uh, my wife and I gave our testimonies for membership, I shared a brief glimpse into what God has done in our lives and how He brought us here, and of the suffering and the hurt that we have endured from those who we once called brothers. In the weariness of heart, in the long nights of tears and prayers and anguish, crying to God to bring us to a family of Christians who loved the Lord and feared God and honored the Scriptures. And we have been so blessed with this congregation. My wife and I have been revitalized and, and healed and restored in so many ways through the fellowship and the preaching of the word. And by God's sovereign grace and by his mercy, he saw fit to allow a fool like me to stand in this pulpit tonight and to be able to return that favor and to be able to bless you tonight through the preaching of the word, not by my own ability, but by the power of the word of God. And we praise him for that. We don't need any gimmicks tonight. We need the preaching of the word Praise God that He delights in the foolishness of preaching. That He does not need educated or learned or popular men. But my friends, we can trust in the work of Christ. And it is my goal tonight, it is my labor tonight, it has been my prayer since Andy called upon me tonight to encourage those tonight who are in Christ to press on and endure knowing that the love of God lasts forever. That He is our covenant keeper. That He has loved us with an everlasting love. And if you are here tonight and you are unfamiliar with this love or you have misunderstood the love of God because our culture has a love of God, but it is not the God of Scripture. And if you have been misguided or misunderstood the love of God tonight, it is my hope and my prayer that you would come into the family of God, that you would become invincible as we will explore in the scriptures tonight through the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter eight, and tonight I will be preaching to you from Romans chapter eight, beginning in verse 31 through verse 39. But as we read through the text, I would like to begin in verse 28. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul writes to the persecuted church in Rome, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those, excuse me, for those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, these he justified. And who he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen who is risen even at the right hand of God, who is also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we approach you tonight with confidence. Lord, not in our own merit, not in our own strength or will or self-righteousness or human exertion, but based solely on the sacrifice of your Son, delivered up for us all. God, as we explore the depths of your word tonight, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would plant seeds of truth that would grow to bear fruit. Hide me behind the cross tonight, Lord. May I only speak truth. And I pray that the people of God would receive it tonight and that we would leave here with praise on our lips with a supernatural confidence in the overwhelming love of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son that you sent the word to put on flesh and dwell among men as a suffering servant acquainted with grief, a man of sorrows, he lived a perfect life that we could not. And he died in our stead so that we may cry out through the spirit of adoption, Abba, Father. God, you are good. You are holy. You are just. And we praise you for the indescribable love that you have shown to your creation. And I pray tonight that that love would consume us with zeal to go out and obey you and live mundane lives in obedience and discipline and faith, fulfilling your great commission. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ we ask these things and, have, and give praise. Amen. Paul begins 
his argument here in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Though some theologians point that he is speaking of this golden chain of redemption that he has just given us in verses 28 through 30, it can be understood that Paul is saying, what shall we say in these, to these things? Referring to everything he has written in the book of Romans up to this point. Paul is saying, what shall we say then to everything that I have presented to you? And what has Paul presented to the church in Rome up to this point? As Hendrickson points out in his commentary on the book of Romans, it can be summarized in this. That one thing the sinner needs above all else is right standing with God. And this right standing is not obtainable by human exertion or merit. This blessing is God's free gift, and we obtain it, namely, by faith alone. The blessing of salvation is both for Jew and Gentile, who will, by God's power and grace, repose his trust in the Savior. He earned it by the shedding of his blood. They are saved by his substitutionary death, his resurrection, and his intercession. Many evangelists and many Christians throughout the years have referred to this opening in Paul's letter as the Romans road to salvation. Paul is presenting so many arguments for the gospel. And having presented his argument to this point, Paul now pauses and asks them to consider what he has brought to them. What shall we now say to all of these things? What shall we say in response to such divine truth? He continues, if God is for us, who is against us? Muldane makes a very uh, important point when discussing this text. Because there are many people throughout all time who have preached this text in a very wrong way, in a very dangerous way. So as, as he describes, to give a false confidence in the breast of people who are self-proclaimed Christians. This argument has been used by political parties of every color and stripe, by every cult, by every religion who tries to advance a cause, and then says, if God is for us, who can be against us? I remember sitting across the table from a pastor of whom we had had a disagreement, of who had looked my family in the eyes and said, if you were not praying in the Spirit, then you were not saved. And after challenging him and not wanting to have a discussion, he appealed to the book of Acts and he said, well, if God is for us, it'll stand. And if not, it will fall. If God is for us, who can be against us? We will be proven in time. The man is no longer a minister, disqualified. We must be sure that if we are going to apply the promises of God, that we are in the grace of God. Or we will build a false confidence so that Christ will look us dead in our eyes on the day of judgment and say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. And these people with false confidence will cry out, but God, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons and healed people? And Christ will say, I never knew you. Be sure that if you are to puff yourself up, in this precious love of God that is very real and very tangible to every believer, that you are obedient to Christ, that you have followed through the steps that he has given us to fall upon our face and call upon God for salvation and repentance and faith. 
that we are keeping up with the works of repentance, that we are bearing the fruit of righteousness. Test yourselves to see that you're in the faith. And once you have done this, my friends, you will receive this truths, these truths of scriptures in a way that is beneficial and in a way that advances the kingdom of God and uh, that we are able to be used. As many theologians have said, if God is for us, it is not, Paul is not saying if as if there is any doubt here. It could very easily be changed out for since. Since God is for us. Because as Paul clearly says in verse 30, we must hold on to this golden chain, my friends. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There is no break in this chain. And if this God who holds this chain in his hands is for us, then who can stand against us? Who can stand against him? Paul continues in verse 32. He who did not spare even his own son, but delivered him up for us all. My friends, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He who did not spare even his own son, but delivered him up. He who didn't spare his own son. We should immediately think upon the father, uh, Abraham, who God required of him to take his son Isaac and lay him across the altar. And when Isaac called out to his father and said, where is the sacrifice? There was none. He was obedient to God and he laid his son down, tied him to the altar. And as he was to lay his knife down, so as to sacrifice his promised son, that this child of, of faith that was given to him in his old age, the angel stops Abraham's hand because there was nothing in Isaac that could redeem the sins of man. There was nothing in the blood of bulls or goats that could take away our sins. But Abraham there refers to God in that story as Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yireh. God, our provider. My friends, God must provide this sacrifice. And it is fulfilled in this text. It is fulfilled through Jesus Christ when he hung on the tree. God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. We must see that the greater representation of Abraham is fulfilled and Christ is sacrificed and the knife is brought down and it pleased the father to crush his son God has provided and we can rejoice in that my friends do not twist the words of God as so many today have to think that God God's provision that God the provider is is somehow a God who provides us cars or a nice house, or a happy marriage, health, wealth, and prosperity. No, God has provided a sacrifice, the greatest means that we could ever receive from heaven. And that is enough. May we seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto us. But delivered him up for us all. Christ prophesied of, of his death, using the same language throughout the Gospels, that he would be delivered up to the authorities. He spoke of himself being delivered. And we see that though it was the Jews who ultimately handed him over and, and had his crucifixion, the apostle preaches in Acts 2.23 that him being delivered by the determinate counsel 
and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and with wicked hands crucified him. What do we see here? That man is indeed responsible for his sins, but God himself orchestrated the greatest sacrifice in human history. God is sovereign. As Paul is making his argument here, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, God gave his son Christ. As Hendrickson said, if, if this text here is not emphasizing the sacrifice, the greatness of God's sacrifice, then words have no meaning. My friends, God made the greatest sacrifice in giving up his own son, a perfect son, and he did it through his wisdom and predetermination. It is important for us to grasp that as Paul builds his argument of God's love and of God's sovereignty through our suffering. Many people, as, as R.C. Sproul is so famously quoted as saying, many people say, why do bad things happen to good people? But that's the wrong question. Why would anything good happen to bad people? Yeah. My friends, there was only one good person to whom something bad happened, and that was Christ, and he did it on his own accord. We have received so much grace from him. And when he says that he who did not spare even his own son, but delivered him up for us all, we must keep in context Paul's uh, letter. In our day and age, we are so used to the chapters and numbers, we don't, sometimes we fail to realize that Paul wrote this as a single letter, a single epistle to the church. It wasn't divided in the way that uh, we may have divided it, and though this is beneficial to us. Sometimes we forget that this is a very specific letter written to the church. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, to the persecuted Christians. Christ has been delivered for us. And so because he is writing to the church, he is writing to every believer in all time. The ecclesia, the called out ones, God's elect. That is who Christ has been delivered up for. Why does this matter? Because the son was perfect in every way. He was without blemish or spot. And the Father laid him down and delivered him up on our behalf so that his love for those who he predetermined would be fulfilled. What a great love we have received. I'd ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. There are many people today, many false gospels, which is to say no gospel at all, who teach that God somehow broke the law for love, that somehow God's attributes are at odds with one another, that his justice and his mercy and his wrath and his grace are somehow not perfectly founded in him, that they are somehow opposed. But my friends, we do not serve a schizophrenic God. We do not serve a, a dualistic God. We serve a God who is perfect in every way. Perfect in wrath. Perfect in justice. Perfect in love and grace. And there is no way that God is going to compromise any of those attributes to fulfill another. But they are all perfectly satisfied in themselves. Because the soul that sins must die. And because God requires blood for the remission of sin. We read Isaiah 53 and we see the fullness of God's wrath and grace fulfilled in the suffering servant. Read with me, if you will, through the entirety of Isaiah 53. Isaiah prophesies in verse 1, Who has believed our report? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has come to bore. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison in judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. As the great reformer said, Our king was crowned with thorns, why do we expect roses? Our culture today has twisted the attribute of the love of God into some sensual thing, into some emotional, temporal idea of love that is not founded in Scripture. And that is why so many professed believers are struggling. Because if God is for me, who would be against me? Why am I suffering? If we are to follow in the steps of Christ, who said, take up your cross and follow me, if you are to be worthy of me, why would we expect anything less in life than to be acquainted with sorrows, suffering until death, my friends, an example has been set forth through Christ. And this idea that he, by his stripes, we are healed physically goes completely against the gospel. Contrary to every martyr, everyone who's ever suffered. Look at Job. Was his suffering in vain? Because he didn't have enough faith? No, God loved him. God's love was perfected in all the sufferings of Job. God's suffering was because God loved him. Do you know this God tonight? Do you know this suffering servant who has called us to come and die so that we might gain? Turn with me back to Romans chapter 8 as we continue. And he continues in verse 32. He says, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul is making an argument here from the greater to the lesser. What more could God give to us miserable, rotten sinners than Christ himself? What more could God give to us? And if God was willing to spare his own son so that those whom he has loved with an everlasting love would be called and justified and eventually glorified, what expense will he spare to make sure that his golden chain is not broken? My friends, the God who saved you is the God who will keep you. How foolish and ignorant are men to stand in pulpits and claim to be experts on the word of God who would read these texts and say that God has loved his people with an everlasting love, but the moment they mess up, it's over. How foolish. Who can thwart the will of God if he says, I have set my affections upon someone? Who can, who can try him? Who can challenge that authority? Those whom God loves, he keeps. And we only love because he first loved us. Praise God who was willing to give this son. We did not deserve this. I've been so thankful coming in this church and studying the language of the, the 1689 confession because these men sought, for, sought to obey God through the scriptures. And I love the language that they use that God condescended. When God created Adam, Adam did not deserve counsel with God. But God condescended on behalf of his creation. God is good to us. If his own son was sent to secure his golden chain, what will keep his love from bestowing upon us everything required to see us through to the end? How shall he not freely give us all things? Don't spiritualize this text, but take into account that everything that falls upon the path of the believer, spiritual and physical, prosperity and misery, Height and depth, everything that falls upon your path, if you are in Christ, has been sifted through the hands of an ever-loving God and has mercifully been placed in front of you for your good and for His ultimate glory. See His promise in just uh, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. We know that all things the same language is being used here. And how will he not also freely give us all things? Everything that comes to pass in your life, my friends, as a child of God, is given to you so that God might be glorified and for your ultimate good. This is the love of God. Not that he would spoil us with the fatness of this life that the world so loves and lusts after and kills one another for. No, God has brought us something much greater. A treasure that does not perish, where moth, and where moth and dust cannot corrupt. We must trust God. He has promised his, this love to us. He has described this love to us, and we must trust in Him. So that we might have joy in our suffering. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And this is why, because of the love of God. See how when Peter approached Christ, asking Him whether or not they were to pay the tax... Christ answers him and tells him to go and catch a fish. And inside of its mouth, you will find enough money to pay our taxes. What, what does that teach us? That God is sovereign and he will provide anything that we need. 
And sometimes that may be going without. But God proves his sovereignty over his creation so much so that we have no reason to fear. God will give us exactly what we need so that this chain is not broken. Verse 33, what shall we, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Paul is now beginning to build his case and with, with, and with confidence he says, who? I love the way Paul addresses the churches when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, where is the debater of this age? Where is the philosopher? And in the same breath he says, who shall bring a charge? As Isaiah said in chapter 50, verses 8 and 9, he says, He is near who justifies me. Where is my accuser? As believers, we are plagued from all sides. As Muldane worded it, he said, Within are the alarms of conscience and fearing the wrath of God. And outward are adversity and tribulation. But unless we overcome the first, we will never prevail against the latter. Do we have reason to fear? Absolutely. The Proverbs say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have reason to fear. Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 2, 12, and 13 to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is not to be taken lightly. What we, what we received this morning from Brother Jim about how we must press in and we must pursue growth in Christ. This is not to be trifled with this is not to sit back and expect as jim said this morning i love it to to grow by osmosis we have been called to put our hands to work but when we in our mind's eye see the blessed savior hanging as pilgrim and we are condemned by the burden on our back if we have been born again my friends that burden has rolled away you have no reason to fear the judgment of God, the destruction of God's wrath. You have been set free. And so my challenge tonight is to contend with yourself, wrestle with these truths, to know that you are in the faith. And once the Holy Spirit has bared witness with your spirit, I ask you to, to surround yourselves with these truths, Preach these truths to yourselves. Wake up in the day and remind yourself of the ever love that God has placed upon you. And that we only love him because he loved us first. And once we overcome this fear from the inside, this, this charge that we bring against ourselves, we must then deal with charges from the outside. Satan's name itself is the accuser. The wretched accuser of the brethren seeks to dismantle the Christian and all that God has done in his life. And though he fires every fiery dart that he is allowed to by the sovereignty of God, they are stifled by the armor that Christ has clothed us in. My friends, you have no reason to fear the charge of the world against you. Because if you are in Christ, you, though your sins are as scarlet, you are as white as snow. Praise God. And we don't try to cover that shame. We boast in our weakness. When people bring these charges against us, we say amen. Paul here is boldly declaring, not long after saying, that there is nothing good in himself, that who can accuse me? Or as if to say, who can condemn me when Jehovah is at my side? 
How does he get this confidence? But notice the language. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? These are God's people. A people of his possession. The apple of his eye. He will not allow any accusations to be thrown at those whom he has declared righteous. We can rest in that. God is our defender. When our thoughts are plagued with doubt and fear, and Satan should rise up and cry, guilty, 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 we can cry, amen. But we boast in our weakness because God is holy, holy, holy. And he became a curse for me. He traded his robes for mine. I am blessed because he became a curse. I am righteous because he is righteous. This is our defense. Not our church membership, not our confession, not our profession or our understanding, but Christ, Christ and Christ alone that is defined in all those things. It is Christ that is our defense in his word. Preach these truths to yourselves, my friends. Do not allow the enemy to overcome you with fear and doubt and atheism. Yes, you are a wretched sinner. Yes, you deserve the almighty wrath of God. But my friends, you are loved with an everlasting love if you are in Christ Jesus. Paul continues, it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Man is dead. The scriptures declare this. God has not thrown us a lifeline. We are not smarter than our neighbors. Man is dead. But God in his infinite wisdom and mercy justifies wicked sinners like you and I. Man is dead. There is no religion that can save him. No self-righteousness. No works. No priests or pastors who can declare you justified. It is God alone who sits in the judge's seat and cries, just He is the one we must encroach with fear and trembling. He is the one we go to for our justification. We can't earn it, my friends. There is nothing good in us. And if you are in Christ, the only good that comes out of you is what proceeds from faith, and that is a gift so that no one can boast. We are recipients of something we could never afford. How blessed are we? Verse 34 Paul continues his argument. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ. So not only is it God who justifies, but it is also God who condemns. Do not fear the judgment of men. Some of us are so stricken with fear to share our faith or to preach the gospel or to be obedient in the Lord because we're scared of what men might say. We're scared of what the government might do to us. We're scared of this or that. But none of them can condemn us. Christ holds all power over our soul. It is Christ who condemns. It is God who justifies. All the papal councils, cult religions, false prophets, devils and demons alike can cry guilty. But it is Christ who gets the final say. Praise God. Paul continues in verse 34. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. 
Paul builds four grounds for, for what Christ is doing here. Four things that we must understand. And that is his death, his resurrection, the establishment of his authority, and his intercession. To remind us Remember, the church in Rome was under great persecution, things we could never imagine here in America. They were suffering, loved ones being taken away. Nero used Christians as torches in his courtyard. And I want you to imagine watching your loved one burn in the public square and hearing this letter from Paul. That God loves you. And this is for your good. Paul writes these four factors of Christ's position to remind us that Christ, like the Pascal Lamb, the perfect Son of God, was slain on our behalf. But He did not stay dead. He rose as He said He would, proving Himself the prophet that Moses looked forward to proving himself and sits at the right hand of Yahweh as an executive authority, having sprinkled his perfect blood, he now pleads as our perfect high priest for the sake of God's elect. This is no man we're dealing with here. This is the God-man. This is Christ. The reason that these Romans are suffering the reason that they are suffering so greatly under persecution, under the wrath of emperors and polytheists and these pagans who gnash their teeth and seek to kill each and every one of them. Why are they dying? For the love of Christ. The Christ who died and rose and sits at the right hand of the Father in authority. This is not a mere mortal making intercession for us, but God himself interceding on our behalf. The receiver, the recipient of such divine intercession has no need for fear. Though we, like John in the book of Revelation, fall on our face as a dead man. Or as George preached last Sunday night in Isaiah 6, when he fell down and cried, Woe is me! Christ assures us with this comfort, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of Hades and death. This authority is important. We see Christ mediates for us in heaven and the Spirit mediates for us on earth, inside of us, translating our groanings. We can rest, my friends, and respond as Job did in chapter 19, 25 through 26. I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job said, though he slay me, I will, I will rejoice in him. Can we say that tonight, my friends? And so after Paul has built up to this point in verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I loved what Hendrickson said, to adequately describe this love is an impossible task. All we can do is stammer. Notice that in this verse, Paul uses the language, the love of Christ. He interchanges the name of God and of Christ because they are interchangeable. 
We must not make this emergent church a very popular mistake that goes on in churches all across America today, all across the world, that misuse this verse as well. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Many people raise their hands in worship and sing songs with the lights and smoke and they cry out blasphemies, completely unaware that they're doing so, swearing things to God that they can never uphold. God, nothing will separate me from you. I'll go to the ends of the earth for you. I'll lay my life down for you. And they boast in these things. This verse is not about our love for Christ. Everything that we have is all of grace. Our salvation is not because of how tightly we hold to Christ, but to how tightly Christ has held on to us. Do not boast in your love for Christ. You are wretched, poor, and miserable. If not for the Holy Spirit, you would have nothing but detest for Christ, and you would despise Him just as the Jews did at His coming. Without the Holy Spirit, you would cry, crucify Him. But God has saw fit to place His Holy Spirit from heaven inside of you. All we can do is stammer. I love how Paul continues here and presses in to his argument. He's not letting them go. He's not going to let them walk away discouraged or disheartened at what is befalling them. As Peter wrote in his epistles, do not... Do not be confused as to why this fiery trial has come upon you. Paul himself says in verse 35, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Paul's not writing as an armchair theologian. Paul has experienced all of these things when he boasts in 2 Corinthians 11. What does he say that I have suffered Beatings, I have been beat with rods, I have been thrashed, I have suffered shipwreck, I have been without clothes, I have starved, I have been in the cold. Paul was reluctant, but he boasts in these things. Paul is not writing as someone on the outside, just keep trying, keep pushing. No, 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 no. Paul is leading this charge. And he knows firsthand that these things can't separate him from the love of Christ. These things are because of the love of Christ. And as he told Timothy while in prison, I am now being poured out like a drink offering because he himself was facing beheading. He suffered tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and peril, and finally the sword. And had his head removed. John the Baptist had his head removed. James gored. How many martyrs have died because of the love of God? Tribulations, that is to say, outward distress. But the word distress is different, and the Greek seems to imply pressure, an inward problem. What we discussed before, these problems of ourselves, uh, uh, speaking, speaking against ourselves, the inner man and the outer man working against one another. Persecutions, both great and small. Though in America, there is not much uh, suffering compared to what we see in our brothers in China and all the, the, the people from uh, the reports of the persecution project that we support, we should still be suffering. Paul assures Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer. 
famine or hunger, nakedness or need of clothing, peril, calamity, or sword, implying death or judicial punishment and execution. The problem of the health wealth gospel today is that it tries to say God wants the best for you, and they have to climb over all the bones of the martyrs to give that message. This Bible has been handed to us through bloodied hands, and it is to the glory of God and for the good of everyone who died. Throw out this garbage called gospel that says God wants you happy, that God wants you healthy, that God wants the best for you. I can promise you that if you are in Christ, God does have a wonderful plan for your life. Just like he had a wonderful plan for Job. Just like he had a wonderful plan for Peter, crucified upside down. Just like he had a wonderful plan for all of the martyrs in John Fox's recordings. Who has counseled our God? He is not like the world. My friends, we must cut off the fleshly desires of the world and all its desires, and we must focus our minds on Christ and what, is, what God wants from us, and that is holiness, obedience. Verse 36, as it is written, Paul says, he quotes Psalms 44, he says, For your sake we are killed all the day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Do not make the mistake of thinking that he just plucked a text out because it, it fit what he was saying. Paul is referring very specifically to Psalms 44 because the people of God were under great persecution and they had done nothing to incur God's wrath. They were confused. The psalmist even cries out, God, why, how long will you slumber? But my friends, we know that the keeper of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. That thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, the glory and the lifter of my head. That we, that we lay down and sleep and awake because the Lord sustains us. Their suffering was for their good. He is sovereign over suffering. He is sovereign over every unexpected death, every miscarriage, every chronic sickness, every trial we face in life. God has placed that in the life of the believer for their good and his glory because he loves them. The Romans suffered for their denial of emperor worship. The Roman world wasn't much different from ours today. They didn't care what God you worshipped so long as you honored theirs. But we do not acknowledge the God of this world. And so we are worthless to the world. Good for little, annoying, as sheep to be discarded. Sheared for what good we can, can provide them and slaughtered. There's no reason to keep us around. But praise God, our God delights in the foolishness of this world. That those who are despised, he exalts. And we find rest in that. That God delights in the foolishness of preaching to confound the wisdom of the world. And in verse 37, yet in all these things, what things? Everything that Paul has given us, all the sufferings of life, all the trials. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love what Hendrickson said in his commentary. I'm so thankful that Andy gave me all these great books. I'll have to give them back, unfortunately. <laughs> but Hendrickson, Hendrickson said, after uh, going through 31 through 39, he said, does this passage not inspire a sense of super invincibility? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
If we are a part of this golden chain, who can break it? Who can bring a charge against us? In the words of George Whitfield, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. Nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing can stop what he has ordained. Behold, I am the Lord. I declare the end from the beginning. Praise God that he is in full control. Christians, what do we do in response to such great a love? Put on the full armor of God. Press on, Christian soldier. You are not warring against flesh and blood, but you are warring against the kingdom of darkness and the prince of this world. But you are not advancing with even the possibility of winning without gain, as so many generals have throughout history. No, 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 no. We have been given the power to be more than conquerors. And what does that mean? Sin's power is death, and Christ holds the keys, so that even if the enemy is to strike a killing blow, we gain. We cannot lose. As one theologian said, a conqueror is able to conquer his enemies, but more than a conqueror makes his enemies an ally. There is nothing the wicked world, Satan, and all of his schemes can do to us to hurt us in regards to our soul. The world will press us through. They will sift us like wheat. But my friends, we are not shaken because we are loved by an almighty God. His kingdom is not overcome even when his believers fall. How can you beat that? We are conquerors through prosperity and misery. We gain through loss. We increase in the kingdom as we decrease individually and we gain as we die. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. It only opens a doorway to our faithful lover. We cannot lose. And in verse 38, I'll close with this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, that is to say, no death, natural or imposed, nor life, any of the troubles that come, nor angels, principalities, or powers all going together. Theologians argue over whether principalities is earthly or heavenly. or Take all of them. Take all of them in the broadest, most general sense in all of human history and bring them together and they are not even a fly compared to the power of Christ. Take all of the principalities and powers, angels, good or bad, because even if an angel from heaven comes preaching a different gospel, we reject that. Nor things present, nor things to come. Many of us come in here every Lord's Day bearing a weight, burdens in our family, in our marriage, in our home, scars from our past, whether from our own sin or from the trials of life. But none of that can separate you from the love of God. Many of us turn on the news and see the fear-mongering. See how distressed we are day to day of what will come. Is Trump colluding with Russia? Who's going to launch the first nuke? What's going to happen to the economy? It does not matter. We are secured in Christ. And that is all we need. Paul says, nor height, nor depth. Christ saves the rich and the poor, the pious and the prostitute. No powers of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck us from his hand. 
He saves to the uttermost. There may be someone here tonight, if you're like me, who struggles with the idea that God could love a wretched sinner such as yourself. But Paul says that Christ came when we were yet still sinners, and that He came to save sinners, of which I am the chief. When you fall into self-righteousness, or when you struggle with this truth, remember the words of Isaiah, you who look for righteousness, remember the pit you were dug from. Christ got His hands dirty to save you, and He was willing to do it. And you are covered in His blood. Rest in that, my friends. And in verse 39, he continues, nor any other created thing. So as to add final emphasis and so as to remove any other argument, no thing and no one can separate you from the master's love. Not your doubts, not your fears or insecurities, not your past, not any man or pope or priest, not an angel or a demon, not the government, not your parents, poverty, wealth, cancer, criticism, even the exposing of your own sins to the public. None of these things can separate you from the love of Christ if God has declared you just. Find your strength and satisfaction in Him so that you will suffer in this life in the fullness of joy. With these words on your lips, though He slay me, yet I will trust in Him because He has loved me with an everlasting love. Paul says that nothing, no other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Praise God for his precious word tonight. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this privilege to stand in your pulpit and to proclaim the truths of your word and of these scriptures to the people of God. It is my prayer and my hope that these words would, would ring true through our hearts and lives this week as we go out and face the world, as we go back to the mundane. Lord, this world is so full of foolishness. Like the Jews and the Greeks, they want signs and they want wisdom and philosophy. But God, you give us ordinary and you work supernaturally through it. The world wants heroes and celebrities and, and, and warriors. And God, you raise up broken and weak and pathetic creatures so that you might receive glory. And you have loved us with an everlasting love so that nothing can separate us. Even if you withdrew your hand and unleashed all of hell's fury upon us, it would not separate us. The devil cannot keep us from you, God. Our past cannot keep us from you. God, if you have declared us just, if you have called us, if you are sanctifying us, and if you are saving us, may we press into that hope every day. May we cast our cares on the Lord. We know that you turn no one away who seeks after you with their whole heart, and that you will lose none who the Father has given you. Because you love us, you are our God and we are your people and you will place your words in our hearts and our minds forever. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word will remain and you write it on our hearts, God, so that we will proclaim your glories forever and ever. And we praise you for the opportunity and the privilege to do so. 
We are worthless, weak, wounded, and weary, but God, you are great. You are magnificent. You are holy, holy, holy. And it is in Christ's precious name we give praise and thank you for this wonderful Lord's Day. Amen.